Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. Enjoying the sights and sounds of my nearest green space and woodland area of Hampstead Heath is always one of my favourite things to do and one animal I enjoy hearing the most is the woodpecker. The thing is, they are so blooming hard to spot, but now, thanks to my Leica UltraVid HD Plus binoculars, I get to see these beautiful birds hammering away for food with very little work. These easy-to-use binoculars are fitted with high-end technology, making spotting wildlife a breeze. They are perfect for a binocular beginner like myself. And now, on with the show. Hello, nature nuts, and welcome to... <laughs> Sorry nature nuts i am holding my head in my hands right now why did i say nature nuts what well, um genuinely did not know i was going to say that that's a moment that proves to ryan that sometimes he needs to have a just just a quick think before he starts talking um but anyway good morning um or good afternoon good evening depending on when you listen to this episode happy wednesday for all i know Welcome to Into the Wild and thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Before I move on and explain what today's show is about, I want to just discuss something that's literally happened today as I record this. I got a message from someone about something I said in the intro of uh, two uh, two shows ago. It was in the UK migration and bird ringing episode with Ellie Mayhew. I said something in the intro that um, wasn't quite correct and it was just a slip of the tongue. I, I just forgot to add a word which made the sentence change quite strongly. Um, I said the sentence, um, now's the time of year when birds are returning to England. Now, I don't think I need to explain to anyone that, you know, during autumn and winter, we do still have birds in the UK. <laughs> they don't all leave. Um, what I meant to say was, you know, spring is here and it's the time of year of when certain birds are returning to the UK. I meant to say certain instead of just, you know, blanket all birds. Uh, the person that brought this to my attention was ornithologist, bird ringer himself, guest on Into the Wild, Mr. Jack Baddams. He had a good laugh at me, messaging me, telling me that he found that sentence hysterical. So what I thought I'd do is in this intro today, just say to everyone, very sorry for that. Slip of the tongue. This is what happens when Ryan ad-libs, right? Sometimes <laughs> I mess up. So I do apologise about that. What I meant to say was certain birds. So that's that ticked off. But anyway, enough blabbing. Let's move on to today's show. If you suffer from wildlife or nature envy, go in with this episode with a bit of caution. I wish I had. I was very jealous the whole way through talking to my guests. This week, we are talking about frogs and other exciting wildlife of New Orleans with biologist and wildlife photographer Gina Zwicky. Gina tells me about the many different types of animals you get to see on a daily basis in somewhere like New Orleans, from frogs, salamanders, snakes, alligators, turtles and birds. There's so much, so much to unpack in this episode. The highlight for me was when Gina said green tree frogs are a common animal in the back and front garden of her house and I was so jealous of this. It was unreal. But Gina also tells me about a citizen science program called Frog Watch which she takes part in. This provides individuals, groups and families with opportunities to learn about wetlands in their communities by getting them to report on calls from local frogs and toads. How cool is that? So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, it's going to make you want to travel to New Orleans when we are safe to travel, that is. Um, so enjoy the show and I'll talk to you at the end. Gina, thank you so much for joining me on Into the Wild. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. How are you? 
I'm great. I'm so excited to be here for your very first frog episode. Speaks to my heart. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so... <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why it's taken me 43 episodes to talk about frogs, considering I love them so much. But here we are at episode 44, talking about frogs. Um, actually, it's not going to be episode 44. I've completely messed that up. Okay, if you're listening to this bit, just ignore what Ryan just said. Anyway, Gina, how are you? How was your day? <laughs> it's great so far. Uh, I've been on my morning hike already. Got to have my afternoon one later. It's not quite mm-hmm. like readily frog season yet, but I'll, I'll see some of the stragglers too. So I'm going to go out to the park again later after this. You know, got to walk the walk, hunting frogs every day. So I've been great. How about yourself? Yeah, I've been good. I had to wait in for a delivery all day. So that was fun. Although the delivery was a very good delivery. But then I decided to go up to my local green space and go for a walk. But it was also to do some filming and recording. So I feel like I've been a bit trapped in a cage today. So sorry if I seem super like, hello, person, let me talk to you. Um, (laughs) I'm the same way. Oh, my God, don't worry about it. (laughs) I'm like so starved for socialization. So... (laughs) so um super excited to chat let's get the listeners clued up with what is going on and who you are so do you want to tell them gina who you are and what is it you do sure well i'm gina zwicky i've been so nicely introduced i'm a graduate student at the university of new orleans and my current project is studying host parasite coevolution in sabin anoles which are an Mm. endemic species of anole to an island called saba in the lesser antilles and the system basically revolves around testing for malaria in these lizards using a PCR test and Mm. then comparing the levels of parasite pressure we detect with evolution in specific genes in the immune system gene family called the major histocompatibility complex. Wow. So basically kind of looking at how parasites can directly influence allele frequencies in these immune genes over space and time. So a little bit more technical than a lot of the stuff that I usually post. (laughs) Again, I said it's like a coping mechanism being on the internet for me. So uh, it's interesting. It's, you know, marginally herp related. It's honestly more genetics than it is herpetology, but good to have, you know, those raw molecular tools to do other sorts of research in the future. But that's what I'm currently doing. It's really funny that you said that. And I'm so glad you did as well, because I'm like, online on Twitter, you're like, here's a picture of a frog on a leaf. And- oh my God, I need to shit <laughs> Which is super like, important. Every day I get out of school and I come on and I make dumb little tweets. So yeah, I, I need No, this. God, they are not dumb. They are not <laughs> dumb. I've, <laughs> I've needed your posts on Twitter of frogs and soft shell turtles and all things like that. It's needed oh, so that glad. I can't leave oh, North London. It's for the people, you know? Um, all for the people. It's- <laughs> Gina, doing it for the people. Um, So this is going to be an obvious question, especially considering for me where you are. But how and when did your love for wildlife and nature begin? So I have been like this since I could walk. Like my parents were so sick of me by the time I was two years old because I was coming in the kitchen with like a handful of spiders handing it to my mom. Just like, hi. (laughs) So, you know, my my parents did their best to nurture this sort of instinctual appreciation for it that I had. Uh, My dad is... um, Sorry to use profanity here. A, a birder. My dad's birder. Come right out and say it. <laughs> but uh, he took me out on lots of hikes to show me, you know, local bird species from a very, very young age. Um, still calls me all the time. He's like, oh, my God, there's a gross beak. At my He's so excited. But um, so I had a very early introduction from enthusiastic and less enthusiastic parties. You know, my dad and my mom, respectively. Mm. But I remember we didn't have, like, that many cable channels when I was really little. We had Animal Planet like PBS. But I remember I just used to spend hours watching The Most Extreme. I don't know if this is a show that you get in the UK. No. It's absurd. It was like 
a really bizarre, like, you know, top 10, you know, fastest or most venomous animals, but it had like horrible CGI of like if humans had these animal powers. So it was like a weird animorphs kind of deal. <laughs> I have like, you know, sleep paralysis Amazing. demons about these like CGI sometimes, but um, <laughs> that was, you know, an early way to kind of get more interested in the nuts and bolts of adaptations, evolution, stuff like that. So that was sort of where my more academic lean came into it. So your dad was a birder. And or I, I assume still is mm-hmm. a birder. And okay, there's a joke on the show that I don't like birds. That's not true, <laughs> but I just don't find them overly. They don't capture me. All right, I'm doing it again. I'm digging myself a hole. But I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Was, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Okay, good. That's what I was hinting to. Mm-hmm. That's what I was hinting to. I feel like I'm now, you know, I've, I've got a guest on the show that finally <laughs> understands what I mean. So let's let's have it in your words. Why, when your dad was a birder, how come you didn't go down that path? I don't know. I have always just been more into the stuff that I can really observe up close. So birds are great. And if you have Mm. good equipment, you know, you've got your Swarovski binoculars or whatever, you can appreciate them a lot more. But I was way more, you know, wanting to get my hands on stuff and, you know, flip over a rock, flip over a log, and there's something you can really take a look at instead of something that'll be gone in two seconds. But it's so funny that you say that because I always find myself seeing just absolutely wild stuff that actual birders would love to see. Just the other day, I was out yeah. walking along a pipeline just looking for snakes because it was pretty unseasonably warm. It was like a 75 degree Fahrenheit day and a great horned mm. owl just like swoops right over my head. And I'm just like, oh, oh, oh an owl. Hey, <laughs> Do you just know that, you know, like a real birder would have been absolutely losing their mind over it. I'm just like, eh, but I see so many cool birds. You know, you see roseate spoonbills kind of out in the deeper areas. Mm. Lots of really exotic, cool stuff. Uh, Migrants coming through the New Orleans area. And I don't know. I mean, I like to say that I'm a birder when I've failed at herping. (laughs) Like, I'll go out and it's like, you know, uh, (laughs) I didn't see any snakes or anything, but I saw an owl, I guess. It's kind of a backup for me. Like, I, I like birds, like you said, but... They're never my primary focus. They're very interesting and beautiful, but I just prefer things that I can be a little bit more up close and personal with. That's such a better way than I've ever worded it. <laughs> and that's why that's why people pick me up. Like you've that sums it up perfectly, because I agree. I you know, I'm a lot more hands-on. I like to look under logs and rocks and that's why I love amphibians so much, because you can really you can get quite close to them. Whereas I usually just turn around and say birds are <laughs> like you've just shown me the error of my ways. <laughs> So you said it there, like you're in New Orleans and the wildlife there just just looks absolutely incredible and does the same, so does the scenery. If the scenery looks that good, the wildlife is going to be that good. But before we get onto our main topic, I want to talk about New Orleans specifically. Sure, yeah. Which is the wildlife and the wild spaces. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the things that you can actually find where you are? So one thing that's really wonderful about New Orleans is that there's an enormous urban park right in the middle of the city, very creatively named City Park. Mm. But it's actually, I think, larger, I know, second largest, just second to Central Park. But there are miles and miles and miles of trails along lagoons. So you get a lot of different habitat types. You get some nice bottomland hardwood, some nice marsh, and you can see all kinds of wildlife out there, even in the middle of this urban center. Mm. And New Orleans is a small city, so I'm sure that has something to do with it. Small city, not a very large downtown, kind of adjacent to some pretty undisturbed natural areas. But you can see top quality wildlife just right here in the city. So that's something I really appreciate because in City Park especially and Audubon Park, which is another pretty large park kind of right smack dab in the middle of the city, lots of the migrating birds will stop through. Again, like gross birds, I know, but uh, (laughs) it, it draws a lot of crowds. So you'll see a lot of birders coming through there, but it's phenomenally 
nice to have such beautiful urban spaces and wildlife available right here in my backyard, basically, even though I do live within, you know, city limits. Yeah. And what, what, so what's common if you went out for a walk, like, I mean, obviously it will change seasonally, but what's common for you to find just on a daily walk? So I kind of have specific parks I'll go to for certain things. Coterie Forest is a forested area in City Park that's pretty well known, like birding, you know, herping trail. And I go to see the box turtles because they're so freaking cute. They're so cute. Nice. Oh my God. Like I was, I was a freak <laughs> last summer about like tracking their like habits and movements and stuff. So I'd go out and be sure to find one, you know, so got to know them very well. You can see the same individuals again and again, if you know where to look, yeah. but you know, you go out on a nice warm day right after it rains and they're going nuts. Like the slugs are all out. The turtles are just face deep in the mud, eating bugs. It's so cool. <laughs> so I see a lot of box turtles. You can see a knolls everywhere so i open my front door really? and like five of them jump off of my porch oh that's what mm. i want it's so na- oh my god i'm from the northeast and i'll never get used to it it's always funny to me and like cool oh so you didn't grow up in no i didn't i came here for undergrad originally i did my undergraduate at tulane which is a university right in the oh, middle okay. of the city and i moved mm. away for a year to work on the west coast as a fisheries observer and i just couldn't stay away mm. it's sort of the city where you live here for a little while, it's very hard to ever completely leave. It's just better than yeah. anywhere else you could go. I mean, so far you've told me about box turtles and anoles, and you've already sold it to Oh, me, yeah. So. Frogs everywhere. <laughs> Green tree frogs sitting like up underneath my little house plants on the front porch whenever I go out. It's uh-huh. so nice. It's just they're everywhere. You can't escape them. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a paradise for a herper. So those animals you mentioned there, apart from anoles, but I guess they live around this environment, but uh, the aquatic and the semi-aquatic animals up there with some of your favourite of the types of animals. Definitely. And that's another great thing is even in just these urban parks, you see stuff like gar fish, soft shell turtles mm. right in the middle of a very public lagoon. Wow. It's very accessible. They're pretty habituated to people as well, which, you know, has its upsides and its downsides. But the upside being that you can almost always see them if you go to just the specific spot where you know the big soft shell turtle is going to be. And this thing is it's freaking huge it's like the size of like a turkey (laughs) (laughs) and it's the same one every time as far as i can tell but you do get kind of a sense of where stuff is going to be kind of a familiarity with individual animals which is nice but that's pretty easy to do in these aquatic environments just because it's not like the turtle's going anywhere if he lives in the water by extension amphibians being aquatic and semi-aquatic i would say that's probably my one true love you know i also did fishery science for a long time and marine biology so Hard to stay away from the water. I would definitely say that aquatic and semi-aquatic are probably at the top spot, probably always will be. I mean, snakes too, honestly. I love snakes. I was really originally getting into herping because I loved snakes, wanted to find them. But cottonmouths are, I think, the coolest thing to see around mm. here. And Do you, Are they common around? They are. They're very they common, uh, especially in some of the parks that are just outside of the city. There's one specific one mm. called John Lafitte Barataria Preserve, where almost every time I go, I'll see a cottonmouth. Wow. Sometimes you get the whole threat display, you know, where they're gaping their mouth wide open and trying to look really mean, even though they're just like a big fat bike tire, <laughs> you know, like five <laughs> feet away from you. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. They're venomous cottonmouths, aren't they? Yes. Not particularly deadly dangerous, but, you know, obviously okay. any venomous snake should be treated with extreme respect. I sure mm. wouldn't want to be bitten, you know, even if it's one of the lower totem pole venomous, yeah, yeah, but, but yes very easy to avoid getting bitten though and what about snakes like so you're more in the in the city so a snake's a common animal you'll see out about on a walk in the city in the city parks they are yes uh nerodia water snakes are very common around mm. here uh the banded water snake is an almost daily find they're everywhere just oh, wow. along the banks of 
the lagoons and the city parks. I also see a ton of alligators just like in in the city, you know. Oh. It's so cool. Oh my god, I'm so spoiled, I know. <laughs> Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this show? Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm looking forward to this. And now halfway, I'm not even halfway through. What are we, 10 minutes? And I'm already going, oh, great. Today I saw two feral pigeons. <laughs> you got to come here. If you ever make your way to New Orleans, I'll take you on the Herp oh roundabout tour. Care, yeah. Careful what you wish for. Careful. Oh, no, I'm serious. Every time I have people come and visit me from out of town, I take them out to the Jean Lafitte Baratari Preserve because you will see alligators. You just will. Dead of winter, you will see an alligator. Oh there's God. there's one specific okay. one I posted pictures of before, but it has like a silly little burrow, and you can just see its head at the same spot along the trail every time. It just looks like a shoe, <laughs> you know, just like sticking out of the mud. But yeah, oh my God, I love love crocodilians. I just mm-hmm. absolutely love. Them. They're up there with that. They are my favorite. They so just cool. absolutely, I love them. So gee, I need to. I've seen them in the mm-hmm. wild once in Australia, and I need to see them again. So you trip over God, them here. Yeah. I mean, they're everywhere. So it's pretty cool. Oh God. <laughs> There is a line to how much I want to see them. <laughs> fair, fair, yeah. Let's let's maintain the. the Dude, like Ryan, that. you'll get killed by one out here. It's great. No, just... <laughs> you know, honestly, that a very quick segue. There's a big problem in the local parks with people feeding them. A lot of the time. Oh, stop it now. Oh yeah. Oh my God. I was out on the trail the other day, and an older gentleman stopped me and offered me a marshmallow. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah. There's this big alligator down the end of the trail. You can give it to him. And they love marshmallows. You know, a lot of the people who will take out the airboat tours for tourists coming in who want to see the wildlife will take out little marshmallows on a string, like a little fishing pole to attract the alligators to the boat, which is, I think, a really bad idea, but interesting to know that they like them, I guess. Yeah, but there's, I mean, surely bits (laughs) of chicken isn't that expensive. You know, you would think, you really would think. There's a lot of weird stuff going on deep in the swamps here. I mean, I'm not I'm not aware of my grocery costs in New Orleans, but in London, marshmallows can be quite pricey. Really? I think they're just using like the kind of so. little like fake sugar ones. So I'm not even sure. The but... thing is, they're not a big thing over here, actually, to be fair. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. think they are. Oh, yeah. We eat garbage here. Don't worry. <laughs> they are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they are in the American section of our supermarkets, I can tell you. That. All right. That's, that's fair. That's reasonable. <laughs> but yeah right oh god that's amazing though okay so without mentioning frogs which is very hard what is your favorite animal to spot on a walk you know i would like to say alligators just because they're so big and dramatic and interesting but it's got to be the box yeah. turtles because they're just so freaking cute mm. they're so cute they have the just little <laughs> behaviors you know like they'll scuttle around oh my god sorry i, lo- I love turtles they're my true love other than frogs i thought you were getting emotional then <laughs> i know I'm sitting right next to Meatball, my, my pet tortoise. You can see her shrine. I mean, not the listeners, but uh, there's a, a painting of Meatball. I can, right yes. Me. And now I've just seen it. But yeah. uh, but yes, so I love turtles. And box turtles are particularly interesting uh, around here because they are really, really phenotypically diverse. So they all look dramatically different. You'll get ones that are just beautiful, mm. golden yellow, like dappled sunlight on the top. Ones that are dark brown. Ones that have bright, bright scarlet red eyes. So I think they're cool, especially because they're a little less common. You really have to kind of do some work to find them most days. You have to know when Mm. they're going to be active, know where they like to hang out, the specific individuals. But alligators you'll find any old day. So (laughs) much as they're the more charismatic animal, I think I love to see the box turtles the most. And what about season-wise? Do you have like a favorite time of year in New Orleans to go and explore wildlife? Definitely. So summer far and away has to be the best. And again, coming Mm. from a northeastern climate where I grew up. It took me a little while to adjust to the New Orleans summers. <laughs> it's extremely oppressive in some ways, but 
once you get used to it, there's just no going back. I can't tolerate the cold anymore. Yeah. And waking up in just like a sweaty hundred degree day is the best because you go out and just all the herps are active out in the sun, feeding, mm. doing their thing. So it's just absolutely humming with life here in the summer. So definitely, I think the best time to go out and experience nature and that is when i'll plan my trip exactly yes get on it <laughs> that was a ryan question just so i could make a note of that for my diary um <laughs> right so let's do this let's talk about frogs are you ready oh i i was absolutely born ready i've been waiting for this all week <laughs> So specifically for the listeners, we're going to be talking about frogs of New Orleans. And I said at the beginning, and I've said probably about 20 times now, I'm so excited because I love frogs. So before we get into too much detail, let's find out why do you love frogs? I feel like frogs are just the most inoffensive animal that you could possibly imagine. Well, that's a perfect way of saying it. Like, you know, I much as I love snakes, I kind of understand why people have their reservations. But frogs are just adorable. Like their little toes, their little eyes, yeah. like... There's just nothing wrong with them. Sorry that I can't be more specific. I love everything about frogs. No, that's, <laughs> like, a, that's a perfect answer. We could just end that there and go, yeah, there's nothing yeah, right. wrong with them. <laughs> but yeah, and they're so diverse. So done. Yeah, so beautiful, so colorful. I've worked on all kinds of frogs. I was lucky enough in my undergrad to work on strawberry poison frogs in the lab of Dr. Corrine Richard Zawaki, who's one of the world's foremost chytrid fungus researchers. So I got to help my friend take color photographs of these strawberry poison frog specimens, and they just all look so, so, so different. Absolutely beautiful, dazzling colors, and they're just cute little fat little frogs, like sitting in a. Oh, sorry. I'll go on all day. You got to stop me. <laughs> no, I will not. No. What do they look like? So, strawberry poison frogs are really phenotypically diverse as well. They have several different color morphs that you can see in mm. the wild. Uh, one of them is called like the blue jeans morph, where it's bright blue legs with spots and then red, oh, scarlet wow. red body with little black spots that look like strawberry seeds, which is why they're called the strawberry poison frogs. Ah, of course, yeah. But they come in greens, yellows, oranges. So part of the project I was working on was trying to determine why they come in such a diversity of colors. Yeah. A good type example for just why frogs are awesome. You know, they're adorable, beautiful, scientifically relevant, all the good things. And do you have, this is going to be a hard question. I wonder if you can answer this. Do you have a favorite species of frog? You know, I can answer that. I love bird voice tree frogs. They are so cute. They're not as common as some of the other tree frogs that you'll find locally. Mm. So it feels like a treat to see them. But usually, you know, they do come in a variety of colors from sort of like the grayish to bright, bright green spectrum. But they're yeah. almost like a, a teal green that's just so unusual Ooh. and beautiful among tree frogs in the area. And they have beautiful, beautiful calls that are sort of just, you know, a sign of the coming spring and summer to me. They're called bird voice tree frogs for a reason. The calls usually are high up in the trees. They're primarily an arboreal species. And it's just mm. a beautiful kind of like haunting chorus of these high-pitched song-like calls. You know how some frog calls can sound kind of ugly, you know, they're all great, but there's another yeah. local frog called a pig frog that literally just sounds like pig, like honking. <laughs> oh my God, they crack me up. But uh, bird voiced, not so. They're very beautiful to listen to and just beautiful to see little kind of gem-like creatures. So those would have to be my favorite, I think. What an amazing way to name frogs. Mm -hmm. it's just... It's just like there's this really beautiful bird throat frog that lives in the trees. This one sounds weird. Yeah, call it a pig frog. Just move on. I'm, I'm dead ass. It sounds like it scares me too because there's feral hogs here. So I've been I've been juked out like a number of times because the feral hogs will ruin your day. You know, they'll really mess you up. So I'm kind of when I go out by myself, like one hand on the tree branch at all times in case I have to like Spider-Man with a feral hog like coming to kill me. 
But really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're extremely aggressive, problematic, invasive species. But yes, the pig frogs love to just well, mess with me. Well, that's what you need to be. That's what you need to be taking to the the um, alligators, right? Not the bloody marshmallows. Take oh the hogs. <laughs> There's a huge hunting industry for the hogs around here. Lots of invasive species. I met a woman through one of my undergrad classes who was a falconer who mm. had a whole business hunting nutria, which are an invasive rodent species, and selling them for dog food. So lots lots to do there. But yes, you're correct. That's, that is such an interesting topic. Funnily enough, I've had that conversation in the oh, last yeah. few months about why don't dogs eat more rodents? Um, okay, but, um, okay, so what kind of variety of frogs can you find in New Orleans? Is it packed full of different types and stuff? So in Louisiana, as a state, there's an amazing diversity of frogs, but there's kind of a dividing line. There's a really, really big lake in New Orleans called Lake Pontchartrain, and to the north and the south of the lake, you'll find different species. So New Orleans is okay. to the south of the lake, and most species you find south, you'll also find north, but not in reverse. So you get about half the species you get in the New Orleans area specifically, since it's a little mm. bit isolated, but still an amazing diversity you get. Let me see. Okay, let me self-test, because I have to know all of these and all their calls <laughs> for the community science stuff I do. All right. Green tree frog, bird voice tree frog, Cajun chorus frog, leopard frog, green frog, and bronze frog. Bronze frog is a subspecies of which. Bullfrog, pig frog, eastern narrowmouth toad, Gulf Coast toad. I can't remember if I said that already, but they're so cute. Um, <laughs> pig frog. I already talked about that. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. How did I not remember that? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but we also have a huge problem with Cuban tree frogs here now. And that's just been in the last oh. like several years. And they're a really, really problematic invasive species because, as you probably know, frogs will eat anything that they can fit into their mouths. And mm. Cuban tree frogs are enormous. They're like palm-sized, many times the size of our local tree frogs, and they voraciously yeah. eat them. So they're probably going to become an increasingly serious problem in years to come with just extirpating local populations of smaller frogs. You can hear them all throughout the city now. This is another function of, you know, community science is monitoring the spread of invasive species. Getting a bit of ahead of, yeah. ahead of myself here. No, no, no. This is it because like you said in the last few years, is that recent, recent? Yes. Like, how's that happened? So it's interesting because it's actually pretty easy to trace the exact origin of this specific invasion. So many invasive species are spread through horticulture. Yeah. And this was no exception. If I remember correctly, the first recorded instance of Cuban tree frog sightings was in palm trees that were intended for the elephants at the Audubon Zoo. And for a couple of years, there had supposedly been a problem where the keepers were finding these big frogs and sort of just, you know, like moving them outside of the enclosure, not really knowing what they were. And I was no exception to this. You know, I lived in the area at the time and I would find them and I was yeah. like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, but I wasn't really yeah. thinking about it. I should have been. <laughs> but Brad Glorioso is a herpetologist, absolute legend. He's awesome. He has all kinds of websites about herps of the area, but he and his team with, I believe, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife have been tracking this invasion, sort of trying to pinpoint where it's spilling over. But again, pretty easy to trace back to just, I think it was like seven or eight years ago, maybe even more recent, the specific introduction with that shipment of palm trees. Okay, that's, that's such a stupid way. I know. It's so hard to, <laughs> to like, manage especially them. Especially a zoo. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah, a zoo that's <laughs> meant to, I mean, let's not get into that. But, yeah. I mean. <laughs> it, it's true to a degree, though, but it's it's so hard because they're pretty cryptically colored. And any sort of importation of plant matter is going to pose this problem just because frogs are so good at hiding. Lots of invasive species are frogs, invertebrates, whatever, what have you. But there's definitely a case to be made for limiting importation of plants 
because it's just almost impossible to quality control to prevent invasions. On a, a slightly different tangent, I promise I'll be quick. Um, I remember a couple years ago when I was in the Pacific Northwest on this same theme, I was just at the grocery store buying some houseplants because I had just gotten a new apartment, moved there a little while ago, and there was a spider on my plant. I was like, hmm, what is that? And it was a brown widow (laughs) and just hanging out on my plant. And I sent a picture of it to uh, one of the local management agencies. And they're like, ah, that's not a brown widow. That's a, you know, trichonephala or whatever they had said. I was like, "Mm, let me send you this picture and got the the bottom side of it with the hourglass. And they're like, yep, 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 yep. So now it's apparently becoming away from it. Yeah. uh, More of a problem. In that area, a huge invasion of the brown widows. Oh my god! And that was, I think, one of the first recorded instances. I hate to be the the noticer, but they're a huge problem here too. So, in a nutshell, plant importation is. So. At least you you knew not to try and just pick it up and move it. <laughs> yeah, I was really tempted to keep it as a pet. I had to dispatch it. I, you know, it makes me sad to kill anything, but invasive species are invasive species, and to to a certain degree, you kind of have to have a thicker skin with that just for the ecological protection aspect. But You've yeah. got to have priorities and you've got to weigh things up. So going going back to frogs of New Orleans, diet-wise, what kind of things are they eating? So like I said about the Cuban tree frogs, frogs will eat pretty much anything that moves that they can fit into their mouths. Yeah. And so around here, that's mostly insects, you know, other invertebrates. You'll get frogs eating small fish as well. But yeah, primarily inverts around here with the exception you know notably of the keeping tree frog which will eat vertebrates <laughs> eat anything that yeah. goes by even wild ho- get them on the wild hogs um <laughs> seriously oh man working on it <laughs> okay so the other end of the scale what kind of things eat the frogs again let's keep cuban tree frogs out of it yeah. because they're just covering everything yeah. and you know, i don't even like them anymore um <laughs> but what what kind of things are eating frogs in new orleans So we have a lot of wading birds, so lots of herons and egrets, and Mm. primarily that's what I see eating them, but you'll get snakes, other birds, but oh my god, I felt so guilty a couple of weeks ago. I was going through some shore plants. I was just at my, you know, normal haunt, walking along the banks, Mm. because you can see lots of little green tree frogs kind of just clinging to the plants right along the water, and I was like looking at one, taking a picture of it, and then I turn around, maybe about 200 feet down the trail, and I see a giant great egret, big white bird, just stab it and eat it, (laughs) like that frog that I had just pointed out to it. I was like, Jesus, but (laughs) yeah, you, you see a lot of that. The egrets are really intense, vicious predators of all those little shoreline animals. They are just so accurate. I don't know if you've ever watched a heron or an egret hunt but they have a special hinge joint in their neck so they can line Mm. up their strike from about a foot away and just snap onto it with explosive force yeah so really effective predators of small things that move quickly you see them eating a lot of skinks anoles frogs stuff like that but uh definitely the snakes will play a part in that too the nerodia water Mm. snakes eat a lot of the larger aquatic frogs i don't know how much eats the gulf coast toads because from what i understand (laughs) they're not very palatable but all other frogs i think are fair game Oh, how do you mean they're not very palatable? So most toads have large glands that will secrete kind Mm. of a noxious, poisonous substance that serves as a Mm. predation deterrent. And the Gulf Coast toad is no exception to this. But yeah, you know, just warty little dudes secreting poison. (laughs) Very enviable. You know, I wish I could do that. Yeah, I don't think much (laughs) likes to eat them. You wish you could do that. Yeah, right? Doesn't everybody? When you're on the bus. (laughs) Very normal. I want this deck to myself. Just secrete. Um, (laughs) Right? It would be handy on the tube in London. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it would be Andy. <laughs> okay, so like you said, like people might have reservations about snakes um, or even things like spiders and stuff, but I would find it hard to have reservations ever about a frog 
how would you convince those that do? Because there, there will be people out there, Gina, there will be people that don't like frogs or find them a bit gross. How would you convince them that they're grand? I think that there are a couple of go-to videos I actually have for this exact purpose. There's one of, I believe they are tomato frogs, just in a, a puddle. Oh my God, they're so cute. Oh my God. But <laughs> it, it had just rained. It's like pouring rain and there's just two males in a puddle having like a gladiator death match. And they just look so ridiculous. They're like yelling at each other. I just, oh my God. Another thing I have heard from people who like spiders, which is also true of frogs, who did not before, is that if you're interested in photography, you will grow to love any subject that stays the F where it is. You know, like, <laughs> so frogs really don't move around that much if you aren't bothering them. Tree frogs especially. Mm. You know, I can yeah. get lots of great photos just because they pretend to be leaf. You know, they're kind of yeah. anti-predation is to pretend they're not there. So they'll stand really still for you. You can get some great shots. And anything you spend that much time face-to-face with, you have to sort of develop a, a fondness or appreciation for. But other than that, I think there are just so many frog sounds that are just hilarious. Um, mm. I've heard frog beats, like synth beats, using frog calls going around, too. <laughs> I want to hear one with the pig frog. It'd be great. But there's just so much to appreciate. I could also make, like, the 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 pity play of, you know, the amphibian extinction crisis. Like, you better like them, you know, or they're going to die. So... <laughs> <laughs> the threat won't. Yeah, yeah. Well, you exactly. have to like them. They'll be gone. Okay, birders can do bird calls. Can you do frog calls? Okay, uh, I'm not that good at it. Sometimes I have to give mnemonics to the volunteers who come on the frog watch hikes just yeah. because specific frog calls that sound like certain things. I'm so glad the answer's not no. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'll, I'll humble myself for the masses. It's fine. Uh, but the eastern narrowmouth toad is the local mm. favorite just because it sounds ridiculous. I have so many videos of this because in the spring... It's deafening. You'll walk through just a section of the forest and they sound like sheep. Like they really do. Okay. It's just like, and that's very faithful. That's a very faithful representation. Um, But then you get the pig frogs that sound like, I'll, I'll go all day and just do the that makes ones. Sense. But, um, that makes sense. But yeah, the cricket frogs uh, mnemonic is that they sound like marbles clinking together, which I can't do because I don't have a weird, you know, no, I mean, like, bird I'd be very impressed voice box. Yeah. But uh <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I'll, I'll do my little frog call imitations for the Frog Watch volunteers, just so they know what to listen for. Amazing. So why are frogs important for the environment as well? Because I guess we know they eat a lot of things. We know things eat them. So are they like kind of a key species for a healthy environment? Well, like you said, a lot of their importance to the environment is just via their position in the food web. And they have different niches that they'll occupy, ecological niches at different phases of their life. Because larval amphibians typically are herbivorous and they'll eat algae, which can have a function in keeping aquatic habitats clean. You know, decaying algae can suck oxygen out of the water, cause hypoxia issues. And then, like you said, as adults, they're important predators and prey. So feeding the herons of of Louisiana is definitely one of their primary jobs, sad as it may be. But (laughs) another important thing that frogs are to us, I guess, not so much in an ecological context, is an indicator species. So because they Mm. have permeable skin, they're really sensitive to environmental contaminants and to any sort of skin disease. So as you probably know, but many of the listeners may not, amphibian chytrid fungus is a huge problem ongoing that's contributing to these absolutely calamitous declines in amphibian populations on a global scale. And chytrid is a fungal pathogen that thrives in aquatic environments and attacks the skin of amphibians. So it can cause lethargy, skin sloughing, redness, irritation, but it's often deadly 
for frogs. And emerging pathogens are a huge concern of a changing climate. So what's happening to frogs right now can be as sad as it is an indicator for what may happen to other species as climates continue to warm and also as habitat loss accelerates, contaminants get into the environment. So sort of the canary in the coal mine of wildlife. Yeah. Sad that they have to be important in that way, but it's definitely serving to inform a lot of our conservation plans for other species. But I think that's also why I love frogs so much as well. That's another thing for me, a point about them, is because they are such an indicator species. You know, if I go for a walk in Hampstead Heath on my green space there and I lift up a log and I find two frogs, for me, that's like, oh, cool. Mm -hmm. That means that this area is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, you know, at least it's on its way to being good and healthy and wildlife can thrive here. So I do agree with it, although it's sad that it, they have to be that. But it's also that well, that's what makes them so much more epic, that they are that kind of, if you find a frog, it's like finding gold. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, ah, oh, cool, the environment's grand. Um, how are numbers and populations doing in New Orleans? So there haven't been exhaustive surveys for all of the species that I'm familiar with in the area. Mm but they're definitely doing a lot better than species in other areas. And there was actually a study published, I think it was 2012, an LSU study that found that an amphiuma, which is a different kind of amphibian found in Louisiana, has like an extraordinary resistance to chytrid fungus and may be key to solving the issue of the chytrid pandemic. Wow. So I think cricket frogs and leopard frogs, if memory serves, and it might not, so don't make fun of me if I'm wrong, uh, are <laughs> fairly, fairly resistant to chytrid fungus, at least in a relative sense. Yeah. Whereas, you know, lots of frogs in, say, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Panama have just been totally driven to extinction by this within a matter of years. A lot of Louisiana amphibians seem to be a little bit more resilient, and it's not exactly been established why in many cases, mm. but I'm hoping it stays like that. You know, obviously protect the home front. All things considered, I think they're doing a lot better than in many other parts of the world, which I'm grateful for. And like you said, summer's your favorite time in New Orleans. Is that also the best time to see amphibians there as well? Or is it, you know, is, is spring the best time to start seeing amphibians? So it's sort of hard to delineate seasons in New Orleans. It's is hot it? <laughs> and then it's gross season, which is, you know, invariably <laughs> cold. But um, so anytime through March till November can mm. be called summer, but <laughs> the line starts to blur. Early summer, late spring is definitely when they're most vocally active. Mm. You know, you'll hear all the breeding calls, stuff like that. But later in the season, you'll see more frogs because the babies will have had time to reach adulthood. They'll be a little bit more conspicuous. It's really a toss up. If you want to hear frogs, spring is the time. If you want to see them, I think that later in the summer is probably your best bet. Oh, that's cool. That's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, I guess seeing them and then hearing them, that's really cool. What kind of frogs do you get around your house? Do you get them around your house? Well, you must get them around your house. I do, yes. Mostly just the green tree frogs. I've seen squirrel tree frogs in my neighborhood before too. Can I just say, Gina, you can't say I just get green tree frogs as if it's I know, like, right? You oh my can't God, I'm, say that. I'm so <laughs> as if poor me, everyone right? gets. <laughs> but my neighbor across the street has a pond, and mm. every summer the Cuban tree frogs start honking right out of it. Uh, oh, really? But it's like behind a fence, so I can't go and collect them. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I hear those most often. But last summer, when we were just inside because of you know pandemic stuff, my roommate and I got this little fluorescent light and taped it to our window because we had a frog that like lived right outside on the windowsill. Amazing. A little green tree frog and just sat there for like an hour trying to wait for it to like catch a bug that was attracted by the light. <laughs> and finally it just started like coming out to just eat the, the the light bugs. And we had our little frog friend all summer on our window. So oh, that was nice. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Can't complain. Yeah, I know. I can't believe you said that about green tree frogs. and <laughs> As if they were grey squirrels. Like... <laughs> 
So you. Okay, I'm going to say it. They might as well be. They're more common than the squirrels. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a nice thing. What a positive bit of news to hear that <laughs> for you, green tree frogs are as common, if not more than grey squirrels. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, such a life. So you lead something called the, is it, did you call it the Nola Frog Rotch or do you call it N-O-L-A? Uh, Nola is usually what you would say, but it. it's a chapter. No, oh, yeah. I didn't want to say that and you'd be like, what? Oh, good. It's a chapter of a much larger organization <laughs> that's run by the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, called Frog Watch mm. USA. So I don't really run anything per se. Cool. I, I lead the trips for data collection. So I'll be, you know, the one with the clipboard going out, training the volunteers to listen for frog calls. But there are chapters all over the country. So it's a huge ongoing community science effort that basically is seeking to monitor frog calling activity for a variety of reasons, but primarily because knowing when things are active and when they aren't can have huge implications for what's going to happen to them with increasing climate warming. We're already seeing shifts in calling behavior of some species just due to unseasonably warm weather. I'm hearing bird voice tree frogs way before I usually do this year. Wow. So having that sort of data is really important. So how long has that been running for? So Frog Watch USA has been running since the 90s. There's data that I've found from as far back as 1998. So yeah, it's Mm. a pretty well-established program and pretty well attended. Most chapters that I'm familiar with, get regular volunteers, pretty constant stream of attendance, because it's fun. You get a free guided, yeah. interpretive, you know, nature hike with somebody who can tell you a lot about what you're hearing, what you're seeing. So I think it's a great way to get your community involved with frontline management and protection of threatened species. And what are the benefits of like running public programs like that? Because we have something similar over here with birds. So our big organisation in England called the RSPB do the Big Garden mm-hmm. Bird Watch, where people count the birds that land at the feeder. It's really important for data. Even if you don't see anything, that's important as well. So is it similar kind of importance, you know, in America for frog populations, like you said, noticing trends? I think so, yes. Uh, there are definitely a lot of better attended bird programmes, because of course, it's always the bird people. But um <laughs> That's why I plug Frog Watch all the time, just because I I think it's really important for people to feel like they're connected to science in their area. I think it's very easy, especially Mm. in urban areas, for people to feel very alienated from the research that's going on there, from nature itself. One of my favorite things is when people attend who have absolutely no idea about anything that's going on. It's great when you get the seasoned pros because, you know, you'll be able to chat industry talk or whatever with them, but it's much more fun to talk to people who are trying this for the first time because that means that people are. It's very heartening to see people continue to kind of take the leap to become involved with managing and protecting their own communities and their own homes. Has it already run in the last year? Is it wait, What time of year do you usually So do it, it usually runs from like about February to November and we had to do a very, very shoestring deal last year with COVID. Mm. But the first one for 2021 is this Friday. I'm so excited. It's again, like I said, unseasonably <laughs> warm. So hopefully we'll actually hear stuff, but... Usually we don't run it in the winter just because there's not that much going on and people are cold and, you know, whatever. But I go sometimes just by myself just because knowing when things aren't active is just as important as knowing when they are. And especially with, you know, the changing phenology of lots of different species, I think going out a little earlier, staying out a little later definitely couldn't hurt. And how has it changed? Well, have you had to change it or the way you run it because of COVID? Has that had a huge impact? It mostly just uh, prevented us from running it at all for a lot of last year, which was unfortunate because the preserve where we take these trips has a boardwalk that's only about four feet wide in some places. So distancing from other people can be challenging. But, you know, with complete Mm. mass compliance 
distancing as much as humanly possible and it being outside, it should be as safe as, you know, just about any other outdoor activity now that we sort of have a better handle on what's going on. So we're hoping to go full steam ahead this year and get it back to where it had been before, just with mask wearing, distancing, all of that. It's really nice to hear that things like that are happening globally as well, because we have another one where it's for the butterfly conservation, where it gets public out there doing it. And I think it's there's also a wasp survey in the UK. And I think every time I hear about getting the public to get the data, it's so amazing to hear not only is it important from a data point of view, but also getting people immersed in nature in such a kind of interactive mm-hmm. way and also the importance of it. I think it's, it's so lovely to hear. That it's not just happening in the UK, it's happening across the pond in other places as well. Um, my last question to you is the question that everyone gets on Into the Wild. The hardest one, Gina, is if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, what would it be? I think about this one a lot, actually, because I have a lot of people making comments to the effect of, oh my gosh, like you're so perceptive, like you see so much, kind of tongue in cheek telling them, you know, it's not a talent, it's a skill. Mm. You really have to practice observation Mm. because nothing in nature on the front of it is the totality of what it is. You know, a tree is never just a tree. You look closely, it's lichens, fungi, insects, all kinds of stuff living on the tree go even deeper than that but this is a really important skill to have especially if you're interested in stuff like frogs salamanders things that are a little bit more cryptic a little harder to find because they're always there you just need to fine-tune your observational skills really always be listening be present in the moment where you are and ready to take in any information that comes your way so i guess in in more of a nutshell just practice being Mm. observant practice looking not for large animals or you know bigger, charismatic, more dramatic things, but kind of picking through the folds of plants, looking through the grasses, you'll find so much that you never even knew was there and just different levels to things that you may have already appreciated. You mentioned salamanders. Do you get salamanders in New Orleans as well? We do, but this is like my eternal hell. I never find them. Oh, really? I'm so mad. Is that your one that you don't find? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yes. And I'll see everybody else posting. They're like, oh my God, life or mole salamander. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so mad. I was out for like eight hours the other day trying to find salamanders. I didn't find absolute jack. So this is like my, this always happens to me. Other people are posting all their crazy, you know, like springtime salamanders right now. And I'm just like sitting in the corner. Just, <laughs> so, so yes, they are here. Not that I would know. Okay. It. If you find one this year, tag into the wild on Twitter, because I need to share that celebration. I need to see that moment if you find one and get a picture. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Hopefully that'll be that'll be my little charm to find one. <laughs> yes, hopefully. Year. Hopefully bring you into the wild good luck charm. Um, Gina, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I'm incredibly envious of the wildlife in New Orleans and I will be taking you up on that offer to come and visit it one day when travel is a thing again but but it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and thank you very much and I hope your frog watch goes to plan for the rest of the year. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Gina is working on, of course, you can do so on social media at Gina Goes Outside. And if you're a fan of Into the Wild and Into the Foliage, you can chuck us a few pennies at our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Into the Wild podcast. And you'll also gain early access to episodes and exclusive shows. You can also get in touch with us at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media, Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or you want to share a nature highlight with me to include in next week's show or just let me know what you want to hear about next. Anything at all, just drop us a line and say hello. But until next time, nature nerds, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.